Hey everyone, my name is Christopher Price. Welcome back to another episode of Brass Bonanza, a Whalers podcast dedicated to keeping the memory of our favorite hockey team alive right here on the Believe Network. This week's guest, Bruce Landon, goaltender for the New England Whalers in the early 1970s, has some great stories about what it was like playing in Springfield, the fan base, and the level of passion the people of Western Massachusetts continue to have for the sport of hockey. But first, I want to let you guys know this episode is brought to you by Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information for live in game betting props and futures. Head to Bet Online today or use your mobile device to join today and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BLEAV50. That's B L E A V 5 0 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. Now let's get to our conversation with Bruce Landon. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start off with something that I've been asking a lot of the guys who signed with the Whalers relatively early on in the franchise's history. What were some of the reasons why you decided to join New England and the WHA? Well, my reason was pretty simple, Chris. Uh, I had was drafted by the Los Angeles Kings and uh, had a great training camp. And actually, the very first year, I was supposed to go and play for the Kings, but they sent me to Springfield. Uh, in the American Hockey League, and I had a good year. We went to the Calder Cup Finals. I had I struggled with injuries, and then the second year at training camp, I blew out my thumb, and I was I was ticketed to be a, an LA King goaltender, and blew out my thumb in training camp, and was sent back to Springfield. And then in that year, I ended up dislocating my shoulder twice, uh, which necessitated surgery. And then I had one more year under my contract with the LA Kings and uh, I could see that the writing was on the wall. It just a number of injuries were catching up to me and the Kings were losing interest. And a young goaltender by Billy, named Billy Smith uh, was my backup my first year. He was coming on strong. So I saw the writing on the wall at the end of my third year. The Montreal Canadiens actually picked up my rights from LA and they offered me a contract, but it was about $80,000 to play in Halifax and $15,000 to play in Montreal, but they had a goaltender named Ken Dryden at the time. So <laughs> I thought my chances of playing in Montreal were slim. I really didn't want to go to Halifax. And at that time, this was 72, I got a call from the Whalers, uh, from Jack Kelly, asking me, telling me that they had picked me up in their draft, WHA draft. And so would I be interested in talking to them? So I did, and the rest is history. I signed a contract uh, with the Whalers and uh, never looked back. How aware were guys out there when it came to the fact that they were taking a bit of a risk when it came to joining the WHA? I think a lot of guys knew there was risk. Uh, We were getting it in our ear uh, from the NHL people. I had actually gotten a call from a fellow named Juan Caron, who was with Montreal at the time. And he actually called me and he said, you're crazy to turn down my offer. The, uh, the, the WHA is not going to work. It's gonna, not going to happen. And uh, a lot of guys who were making, were offered a lot of money, were taking some risk. They were leaving at least the security of maybe having a contract with the National Hockey League, whether it's been with the NHL or with the AHL, uh, to take, take a gamble, take a leap of faith that this WHA was going to get off the ground. And I was one of the fortunate ones, Chris, along with a lot of other guys, was signing with the Whalers because, yeah, as we all know, there were some horror stories, I guess, throughout the WHA with some mm-hmm. uh, certain 
players, but I never had a problem. The Whalers were, were first class all the way. What was it like playing for Jack Kelly and Howard Baldwin? Well, he played for Jack. Boy, he worked. Uh, Jack was a, he was a very disciplined coach. Um, as I tell some stories in, in my book that we'll talk about at some point, but mm-hmm. uh, Jack, he was fair. He was tough. He was demanding, but he was a guy you could talk to. I've said all along, Jack was at that time for me, almost a, as much of a coach. He was a, a little bit of a father figure to me in some ways. You know, he was he was just a great guy to communicate with, but he was a good coach. He, he knew the game. He was smart, but he worked you hard, but he allowed you to have your fun, too. He knew where to pick his spots, and uh, I couldn't say – there's nothing I could say bad about Jack Kelly. I just love the man to death. He was great for me for, for five years. And Howard, as we all know, was the face of the Whalers, and I think they say any successful organization starts from the top, and I don't think anything is more true than with the Whalers. Howard was the face of the franchise. The president got it up and started, was was good with the players, treated the players well, uh, made sure we had all the things we needed. Didn't want to do anything second class. Uh, wanted to make sure that they got the reputation around hockey and around the NHL circles that, you know, they were the real deal. And uh, Howard made it that way. It felt like, from my perspective, going back and reading and talking to some of the guys, that at least when it came to team building in New England, one of the things that both Jack and Howard decided to do was bypass a lot of the stars that might have been available. Instead of doing that, they decided to really kind of focus on putting a team together as opposed to kind of collecting talent. And I think that was one of the reasons why you guys had the sustained run of success that you did. What was that like in that locker room? That's not to say that really, you know, they they didn't hand out big contracts, but it seemed like the New England Whalers were more of a team as opposed to, say, the Philadelphia Blazers who went out and spent big on Derek Sanderson or, you know, or the, you know, the, the Jets and, you know, and Hull. It, it seemed like in New England, it was a very different approach. Absolutely. And I think the success of, of, of the Whalers in 72 and winning the championship was when we started is you look at the makeup of the team. The big name was probably Ted Green, who mm-hmm. was playing with the Bruins. But, you know, Ted was a long, you know, up in age, but he was still a leader and was well-known for his years with the Bruins. But the way that Howard and Jack and, and Jackie Ferrer and Ronnie Ryan, the scouting staff, the way they put the team together, it was made up of some really quality NHL players that probably weren't getting the minutes they deserved or thought they were People, you look at our defense with Rick Lee and Brad Selwood came over from Toronto. You, know, you look at Al Smith, great goaltender who had played in the, in the NHL for a number of franchises, and he solidified the goaltending aspect. I was thrown in as the backup, which was fine with me at the time. And, uh, you know, Tim Shee, coming, uh, a star coming out of college, Tommy Webster, who was a prolific goal scorer. So they built the team around guys who who deserved to show that they could play and some guys that were really no superstars on the team, but a good mix. And you talk about bonding, you know, I played eight years professionally, but there was, that team was a close team. Uh, and, and there's something you hear about these days a little bit, but back then that was a close team and we hung together we went out to eat a lot together. And I, I think that helped for our success, but it all started with the way the team was built with the blend of good AHL players that were ready to, show they could they were better than they had the opportunity to show in the AHL and some good NHL players and some good college and junior players so it was a good mix 
I'm glad you bring up the name Al Smith. Uh, really, from my mind, one of the WHA's more underrated characters. Tell me what made him such a unique guy from your perspective, and what was he like to play with? Well, first of all, I'll go second part first. To play with as being his backup, I couldn't have had a better guy to play behind. And by that, I mean for two things. One, that Al was a competitor. Uh, he wanted the net. Uh, he wanted to play as many games as they wanted him to play. And he made me work harder in practice to get the opportunity when it came about to be ready for it. But the thing about Al, he was such a competitor um, and, and he just loved to compete. He was a tough SOB in, in a lot of different ways. But when I did get the opportunity to play, he could have been more supportive. You know, my nickname with the Whalers was Batesy. And it was also Batesy, good luck, have a good one. If I had a bad game or a bad goal at the end of a period, he'd be one of the first guys to talk to me. So he was a great guy for me to play behind uh, because it made me work harder to try and get the net from him once in a while. But I also knew when he played, he wasn't going to bail out of a game. And, and, you know, I don't like to use that term too often, but there are some goaltenders that will bail out. You know, the going gets tough. Uh, they get four or five goals on them, and they'll look to the bench for the goal, for the coach to pull them. Not Al. He, Al wanted to stay in there and uh, fight his way through it. And he did a lot of games and won some games that way. But great guy, just a, a wonderful guy. Uh, obviously died way too young. I think in the the phraseology of Larry Plo, uh, a little bit to you know to the left of center when yeah. when, when it came to talking with him. What was he like? Uh, again, great competitor, great teammate, but again, he was a guy who was a little bit unique for his time. Let's just say he was unique in the sense that he was doing things back then that uh, a lot of players back then were doing. He was reading a lot and not reading you know your typical murder mystery. He was reading deep novels and, and reading poetry and he would be on to become a writer himself and uh and did some writing so he was a little bit different than certainly most of the players back in those early 70 years he, he wasn't a party guy too much i mean he'd, he'd go out for dinner with the guys he, he was very chummy with tom Earl, who was an, another player on our team they were became very close and tom was a a scholar type guy too as well and i think al wanted to be that you know, scholarly type uh, person and uh, really, I think, uh, fine-tuned his skills away from hockey a little bit just because of the way, the, the different interests he had. You played some games at the the Eastern States Exposition, the Big E. I, I've talked to guys who played there and I went there, I remember, for the Big E numerous times as a kid growing up. But playing there, they say it was a real experience. Tell me what it was like on the ice in that beautiful old barn. Well, the old barn, I, I turned pro in 69 with the Springfield Kings, and we played at the old Coliseum. And I had come out of Peterborough as a junior, and Peterborough had a beautiful facility, beautiful locker rooms. And then I came to Springfield, and I'm a pro hockey player. When I first walked into the Coliseum, I said, oh, my God, what is this? You know, it, it was a barn. But it was a barn that had its its own feel about it. And when there were 4,500, 5,000 people in there with the wooden floors and uh, banging on the floors and making a lot of noise and you were, and the ice surface was very small. It was a very small ice surface. So as a goaltender, uh, you know, a, a hard shot to the blue line, you had to be ready for it because it was on top of you. It was such a small ice surface, but we didn't have, we had very small locker room, cramped quarters, but it was something about the mystique of playing in the old Coliseum and, 
and I enjoyed it there. It was a challenge uh, because the fans were right on top of you, and Springfield fans were very knowledgeable. They would certainly let you know if they weren't happy with your performance, and, you know, Springfield had hockey for, you know, so many years, going way back with Eddie Shore being so popular there. So the fans knew their hockey, and uh, it was, a, it was a, a different type of place to play, different atmosphere, certainly. You retired at the start of the 77-78 season after sustaining a knee injury, but you remain someone who really, in my mind, singularly devoted to hockey in New England. After your playing days, you held a bunch of jobs at the Springfield Indians, including GM, and you really, in a lot of ways, became the face of hockey in Springfield. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a street in Springfield named Bruce Landon Way for people who, who aren't familiar with that. T- tell me your career path, your post career playing path how you got started on that and, and and was was there someone who said hey look you know we want we want to make you know, we think you'd be a good gm we think you'd be a good coach what was that like for you well i got fortunate um i had went back after my whaler years were over five years with the whalers uh and that we ended that in the 76 77 season so the start of the 77 going into 78 season i didn't have a contract and i wasn't sure i you know, I had a young family and uh, two kids and I wasn't sure, you know, what I was going to do. And the owner of the Springfield franchise that time, a man by him, George Leary, he owned the franchise and he asked me, he said, would you like to do some summer sales for us? And would you like to play one more year? And uh, I said, all right. And I gave me a chance to stay in my house in West Springfield, get a little involved, get involved in sales in the summer, doing some advertising sponsorship sales. And then play that year, the 77-78 season, as his number one goaltender. Uh, but I blew out my knee uh, in a practice, actually, and uh, George came to me and he said, you know, I, you have a chance. If you want to have surgery and continue playing, we'll take care of that. But if you want to just say enough's enough and come into the front office, I have an opening for you in the front office. So, you know, I'd had so many injuries, Chris, uh, between my shoulders and Achilles tendons and torn thumbs and I just decided, you know, it's just not in the cards for me. And I, I, I decided I'll, I'll take the front office job and literally walked in the office and he gave me a legal pad and a pencil. And he said, well, okay, you're in charge of group sales. And <laughs> so I started really just uh, doing group sales and then worked my way into the PR side of things and more into the marketing side of things. And then, um, and learn, learn, you know, you know, hands-on. And then in 1982, uh, fellow that I had actually had signed or hired as a broadcaster, Peter Cooney, ended up buying the franchise from George. And um, he, I had hired him in 79, 82, he, he bought the franchise and he came into my office and said, okay, you're going to be GM. So in 82, I became the general manager. And back at that time, uh, AHL general manager was signing some players. You're a little you're more involved in the, the hockey side of things. And uh, so I started in 82 as general manager and you know, we won a couple of Calder Cups and uh, had, a, had a great experience dealing with a lot of NHL teams as a general manager and signing some players and having some success. And then uh, fast forward to 94, Peter decided he was going to sell the franchise and there was not going to be any hockey in Springfield. And it had been my home for so long. And I won, it was in April, I believe it was, uh, word got out that the franchise was leaving, that Peter had sold it, and, there, and the local TV station put a microphone in, in front of me at the last home game of the season and said, what are you going to do now, Bruce? There's no hockey. 
And I just spit it right out with any thought. I said, well, I'm going to do what I can do to keep hockey in Springfield. And uh, I didn't have the money. I didn't have the contacts. But I ended up having a very close friend, Wayne LaChance, who uh, had heard about it. And we were very close friends. And he called me up, Batesy, what's going on? And I met with him. And in two weeks' time, we put an investment group together. And uh, we had to buy a brand-new franchise called the Springfield Falcons. And went through that whole process. And that's how I really got into becoming the general manager and president of the Springfield Falcons. And then over time, I ended up flipping it a couple times to different organizations to make sure we kept hockey in Springfield where it still remains today. That's a rare level of commitment for anyone, regardless of whether or not you started there as your hometown. What sort of connection was it? Was it family was it friends what what's the what's the thread there for you that made you say look I want to stick around Springfield I want to make sure that hockey in Springfield it it really continues and really continues to sustain and 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 thrive and kind of you know open up the tent as as big as possible for people well I I think what it boiled down for me is I didn't want to become lack of a better terms a hockey gypsy you know I had some other opportunities but I would have to leave Springfield and that would have mean uprooting my family. And I was very fortunate during my playing career because I met my wife here in Springfield in 1970 and got married in 71. And we had a home in West Springfield. And when I played for the Whalers, I was able to keep my home in West Springfield. And I had an apartment in, outside of Boston. And so my wife, when I went on the road, could stay in our home. So we never had to live. And then when we moved to Hartford, I was able to, obviously it's a half hour ride door to door. And so my roots were in, were in Springfield. And I think I just didn't want to get into something else where I might have to move my family around. And I, I saw the fan base, how, how, how much hockey meant to the people in Springfield. And, uh, you know, it was a, an opportunity for me and it worked out. I mean, it could have went the other way. We could have not been successful, could have fallen flat in our face, but I, I felt very confident that hockey could work in Springfield. Uh, the game was changing a little bit. Uh, the landscape, the league, the AHL was changing a little bit, but I thought we could be successful and we darn we were. And, uh, you know, we made it work. I love that. That's a tribute to you. It's a tribute to the people of, of Western Massachusetts and their love of hockey. But at the same time, it's a tribute to you and your dogged pursuit of keeping the sport alive in, in any way possible, professional hockey alive in Western Massachusetts. You are an absolutely rare sort in the world of professional sports, in my opinion. You've seen life from multiple perspectives, what sort of lessons did you learn as a player with the Whalers that you might have applied to your tenure as an owner and a GM? Well, I have a favorite, so I have a saying, and it may be a little, I don't know, pompous maybe, but maybe not. I, I remember when I was when I was playing for the Whalers, and even when I was playing, in, when I turned pro with the Kings, but when I, especially when I was playing for the Whalers, I had, to, I had to work hard. I had to earn my job every single year. I mean, there were guys who came into camp every year, Larry Plo, Brad Selwood, Ricky Lee. They, they had their jobs. They came into training camp. They knew they had their jobs. There wasn't one year of the five years I went into the training camp with the Whalers that I was guaranteed a job. They always brought in somebody they thought were going to beat me out of a position, and they never and they never did. So I was able to – I learned how to work hard. And I also worked hard in the summers. Uh, I was never one just to sit around the summers. So I think the lesson that I think helped me when I retired was, as I told George Leary, who gave me my first chance in the front office, I said, I, my line was, George, there are going to be a lot of people who will outsmart me, but nobody's going to outwork me. 
And I think that was really my, my motto, if you will, or, and I stuck to it. I was, I pride myself in the fact I was a hard worker. Was, you know, didn't matter how many hours were in the day, what I had to do. I had to work 18 hours, you did. And, and I'm not trying to blow myself up to something I'm not, but that was, that's what I had to do. I had to be a hard worker as a player, and I had to be a very hard worker to prove myself in the management side of things. You wrote a terrific book for for my money, one of the really underrated hockey books out there called The Puck Stops Here. It came out in 2019. Go pick it up. It's a fun read. Tell me about what went into the decision to write a book. Well, this one's a little sentimental. Uh, After I retired from hockey in 2017, I was sitting with my daughter, Tammy, on my my back porch, and we were having a, a cocktail. And I just got talking and telling her stories. And she said, Dad, you should write that stuff down. And there were things she had never heard before. And I said, Tam, nobody wants to read what I have to say. And she's, and Tammy was a writer. Uh, she was a grant writer. Um, and she said, you write, just jot things down. I'll be your editor. I'll put it together. And let's just see where it goes. So I said, all right. So I started, you know, five minutes here, five minutes there, jotting some notes down. Uh, unfortunately, Tammy came down with very rare cancer and uh, and she you know she eventually passed away but one of the things she had told me when she was very very sick and uh, she said dad you make me one promise promise me you will finish the book mm-hmm. so I I what else do you need for motivation right so I sat on my computer and I was able Tammy was going to be the editor but when she got very sick couldn't do it friend of mine, Ron Chamellis, who is a writer for the Springfield newspapers here, called me up. He said, I'd like to edit your book. And I said, you haven't read one draft of it. And he says, I want to read, I want to edit your book. So I sent him a few drafts and he said, I love this. And, and I said, well, we got to get a publisher. And he said, okay. So he sent the draft of my material to the Springfield Republican newspaper here. And they have a, a book division as well, where they publish books. And they read a couple of the drafts that we're in. We want to publish this book. So it came together where I had to write the book now. And I, I admit it was very, very difficult. I give so much credit to people that do it for a living. But I, I poured my heart into it. It was an inspiration. I was, being, I was inspired by Tammy. And, uh, and I finished the book. Unfortunately, uh, she passed before she had a chance to read the book. But she knows I finished the book. It's great. And I'll, I'll say this as someone who has gone through the book writing process before, it is not easy, as you mentioned, but at the same time, it's a labor of love. You really have to love what you write about in in this book. It, it really comes through how much you love the sport of hockey, how much you know you love the area, your love of family. And it's just like I said, it's really one of the more underrated books out there if you're interested in learning more about the history of hockey in western massachusetts if you're interested in learning about you know bruce and the whalers and his professional career his family it's a tremendous tremendous read bruce i want to wrap it up with a question that i have for everyone what for you is the ultimate legacy of the whalers franchise is it the logo is it the fans your teammates what do you think of when i say the new england whalers or the hartford whalers well, I think of Jack Kelly, uh, I guess. Um, he, Jack and Howard, uh, they both come to mind, first of all. You know, and as we all know, Jack passed not, not too long ago. But I think of Jack, I think of the Whalers, I think of the, of the very strong fan base when they moved the team to Hartford. And, you know, Hartford wasn't the most knowledgeable at that time, hockey crowd. 
but they embraced that team like like you couldn't have gone into a better city. Uh, they embraced it. They made made us all feel part of the community. You know, from what I understand, the Whaler logo, the Whaler brand jerseys are still hot selling commodities everywhere. So the Whalers made their mark in, in not only, not so much perhaps in Boston, but certainly in Hartford. And, but when I think, when somebody says, when you think of the Whalers, you know, I have some great stories. I read my book, but I think of Jack, I think how, how well I was treated personally by Jack Kelly and by Howard Baldwin and Ron and, and Jackie Furr, the whole crew there, and some of the great friends I made as teammates. I just, uh, I talked to Brad Selwood, Larry Plo, uh, you try to stay in touch, but a lot of great memories, Chris, but mostly I, I think of Jack and, uh, and Howard and what they did with the franchise and did something that nobody thought they were going to be able to do. Tell people what you're doing these days. Playing a little bit of golf. Uh, I'm, a, I'm sort of become a bit of a homebody. Don't go very far. I, I play golf a couple times a week. Uh, I'm I'm an outdoor guy. By that I mean I'm in my yard, at, out my garden at 6:30 in the morning. I do all my own landscaping, my yard work. I stay busy. I, we're right now. We're in. The, I'm very busy with. We're involved in our third annual comedy night fundraiser for my damage my, my daughter's foundation. After she passed, my wife and I set up a, a called the TJL Charitable Foundation, where we have a comedy fundraiser. All the proceeds from my book uh, go to the TJL Charitable Foundation. I don't make one nickel off of it. And uh, all the money from the comedy night go to the foundation. We help support Clark School for Hearing and Speech um, locally here in Northampton, which is where Tammy worked and loved working for 15 years, I think it was. So it, that's been sort of our passion right now. We're working on that because that's coming up September 24th. And I put the squeeze on a lot of my hockey contacts for some auction prizes. And I've got Toronto and Colorado and St. Louis and a lot of some AHL franchises are all sending me jerseys and uh, good friends of mine like Bruce Boudreau just sent me some some things as well. So that's what we're focusing on right now. But I stay busy. I'm not going to sit around too much, Chris. And you're going to be at this event in Springfield, I think, early next month, if I'm correct? It's August. Is that coming up a week from Saturday, August 6th? It's uh, called Hockey Day in Springfield. It's put on by the Springfield Hockey Heritage Society. Uh, It's to bring together as many local players and players not just local. They're flying players in from Mario Lassard's coming in and there's some other names coming in. Sean Evans, local players that play here in Springfield that and uh, it's a really nice day. It's uh, They just give a chance to the Hockey Heritage Society. He's done a really great job remembering a lot of the players from the past uh, as much as anything else. The book is called The Puck Stops Here. It's written by Bruce Lane and former Whalers goaltender Bruce. Thank you so much for taking the time today. One of the things that we always talk about on this podcast is everyone has to do their part to keep the memory of their favorite hockey team alive. And I love these stories, and if you want to hear more of them about the history of the Whalers and Bruce's time as a goaltender, uh, go pick up the book. It's called The Puck Stops Here. Uh, Again, if you're a Whalers fan, if you're a hockey fan, it's well worth your time. Bruce, thank you again for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Chris. All the best to you. 